Our second reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And I want you to know I have practiced reading these names, but I am perfectly willing for one of you to come and volunteer if you would prefer that. Seeing no hands, let's read together. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The word of God for the people of God.
what can you say about the first 17 verses of Matthew? They are a cure for insomnia. But there is something to learn there. Several years ago now, I traveled to Missouri to spend a few days with my dad, whose health was deteriorating. And while there, we visited the area where the White family had settled after their migration from North Carolina in 1850. Among our stops was a church where they had attended, and the pastor there greeted us warmly, and after hearing what we were about, he produced a booklet that the church had recently published, and in the booklet, he turned to a page with a photo taken in the latter 1800s or the early 1900s, a photo of the Baptist preachers in the area. And there, standing straight and tall, right in the middle, was my great-great-grandfather, Christopher Columbus White. Nobody consulted me before he was named. He was known by his family as Lum. There he was, Lum, standing in the middle, holding an open Bible. At one end of this line of Baptist preachers was his son, my great-grandfather, James Arthur White. The photo was taken before his wedding, I believe, to my great-grandmother. I'm reasonably sure it was taken before their divorce because afterward, he was persona non grata among Baptists in that area as far as preachers were concerned. However, I'm told that he continued preaching in congregations in northern Arkansas who apparently were less selective. My grandfather was also a Baptist preacher. My dad recognizing that he was the only non-preacher in the five-generation span from myself back, said his calling was to be a Christian layman. And so he was. There's something inspiring to think of oneself standing in a long line of faithful witnesses stretching back to earlier days. But in truth, Bloodlines and DNA aside, each of us stands in an unbroken line of faithful Christ followers all the way back to the first disciples. For as Paul wrote to the Romans, how shall they call on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they, shall, how shall they hear unless someone tells them? Someone told someone else who told someone else all the way back. And we are the recipients of their witness and their faithfulness. 
This is indeed inspiring. And in addition to the inspiration, there's something sobering about realizing that generations to come depend on us. They depend on our faithfully answering God's call during our time on earth. Each one of us has a significant part to play in the transmission of the gospel from generation to generation. But we are all aware that it doesn't really matter how many ancestors profess faith, for faith is not hereditary. And it is also sobering to realize that our challenge is, first of all, to make faith our own. Someone once quipped, God has no grandchildren. We are all his children, having made the faith our own by acknowledging Christ to be God's Son, our Savior. Advent is a time of year when we celebrate the coming of the Lord, who is the light of the world. The words of Isaiah which we read earlier in the service, conclude with, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. When I was editor of the Religious Herald, several other editors and I were invited by the Jordanian government to visit that country and to meet with Prince Hassan, King Hussein's brother. Perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised to find in Amman, the capital city, of all things, a Baptist bookstore. Because the king and his queen, Queen Noor, who had been an American before she married the king, the king and Queen Noor sent their children to the Baptist school in Amman. So, in the Baptist bookstore in this Muslim country, I bought a manger, a manger scene. And although I thought I had packed it carefully, somehow or another, in the trip home, probably from the very delicate way baggage handlers move our luggage, Somehow or another, baby Jesus had come loose from the cradle and slipped from side to side in the frame. When I arrived home and showed my family, baby Jesus was loose. And my second granddaughter, who was about five year, years old at the time, said, Papa, Baby Jesus won't stay in the manger. Something prophetic about that. During this Advent season, many who are otherwise not particularly religious will celebrate the birth of Christ in a, a kind of secular sense. They will pay a kind of lip service, uh, a 
kind of secular homage to the Christ. They will sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. But the words of worship will pass from their mouths without passing through their hearts. Each year, they appear to catch the Bethlehem virus. And for a time, they dogmatically encourage us all to put Christ back in Christmas where they seem to assume he rightly belongs. For them, the coming of Christ is a reason to shed the monotony of work schedules and embrace a time of a fantasy of wishful thinking when there is peace on earth and goodwill among people of all nationalities. And after the holiday is all over, they pack away the lights, the ornaments, and the manger scenes, and life gets back to normal. Baby Jesus is packed away for another year. But as my granddaughter observed, baby Jesus won't stay in the manger. In fact, Jesus won't stay a baby. The fully mature Son of God demands more of them than they are willing to give. He bids them follow to the hard places, the tight places, to the altar where we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's what we rightly celebrate during Advent, the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, who takes away the sin of the world and who calls His followers to lose themselves in the greater purpose of reconciling human beings with their Creator and Redeemer. John's Gospel begins with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Through him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We who live in the light of Christ are being tested these days, in my judgment, by the darkness. Tragically, almost nightly on the news, we are confronted with new reasons to be discouraged about where this world is headed. Each week seems to bring new news that another multiple killing has taken place someplace. Greed and dishonesty seem to have become the corporate and in some cases even the personal norm. And at times 
the flames of our lights flicker as the dense darkness of this world presses hard upon us. It demands quit trying to be different, conform, be like us, it beckons. And in truth, there is much about what the dark side offers that is attractive to our baser selves. It's the way of self-indulgence. It's the easy way where you can get along by going along. It is what Jesus called the broad way, and it is filled with people whose chief objective in life is to get what they want when they want it. However attractive that may be, there is one major problem, according to the mature Jesus, who is closer to the cross than the cradle, the broad way leads to destruction. Isaiah's challenge to walk in the light of the Lord and his hope for peace will never be fulfilled with a once-a-year celebration of a baby in a manger. Only as those of us who have met the light of life, we who have become a part of that light. We who will not be overcome by the darkness, no matter how thick it becomes. We who proclaim a truth that seems too good to be true, that God is with us, that somehow all that is wrong will be made right, that in Jesus, God stepped into human existence to turn our dark night into dazzling day. Only as we hear Isaiah's other words, to prepare the way of the Lord, can we have assurance that future generations will hear and believe. So for the believers of our age, the challenge is to keep our lights shining brightly, to refuse to let the darkness diminish our witness, to encourage one another in faith, and to be for the next generation of believers models of Christian faith. To display within ourselves and outwardly to others the light of Christ, which manifests the fruit of the Spirit. Let these fruits be seen in us as witnesses to the transformation Christ brings. In you and in me, let there be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Will there come a time on this earth when Isaiah's words describe reality rather 
than hope? Will there come a time when nation will not rise up against nation, when national treasures can be used to cure diseases of mind, body, and spirit, rather than used to create ever more efficient ways to kill our fellow human beings? The Advent candle we we lit at the start of the service symbolizes that hope. It is a hope that we will answer the call to live in the light of the Lord and to share the light of the Lord. It is a hope that we will answer the call to sacrifice whatever is necessary to actually make Jesus known. You know, sacrifice comes in various forms, but one way is financial. Copies of this year's proposed church budget are available for you here, somewhere in the front. Copies of next year's church budget are transparent. That is, nothing is hidden. And whenever I think of church budgets, I think of a man named Charlie Hatchell from my time as pastor of First Baptist Church of Newport News. Each year, Charlie gave to the church about $8,000. Now, I was not ordinarily privy to what people gave, but Charlie's was an unusual case. The remarkable thing about his giving was that he had died a half century before. Through careful planning with the Virginia Baptist Foundation, now being called Ever Bless, Charlie is continuing to bless future generations yet to be born. Charlie was not rich. He was careful. But he was rich only in vision. He walked in the light of the Lord. We live in hope that we will answer God's call to minister. I would ask the young people the young men and women, the boys and girls here this morning, could God be calling you to fill the pulpits of future churches, to serve future generations? But ministers come in the form of faithful lay members too. God is calling deacons Sunday school teachers, committee members, and even nursery workers, each one using his or her gifts for God's purposes. The words of Matthew in describing Jesus' lineage remind us that we 
are the custodians of the present age. Pick any of those names that we tried, I tried to read aloud, and each one lived his or her time on this earth, playing some part, however significant, in God's plan to be revealed. So, too, are we here for these years of our lives to prepare for what is to follow. We have reason to be profoundly grateful for those generations of believers who preceded us, and we are mindful that unless Christ comes soon, many generations will follow us. Someone once said, we live in the dash. On a gravestone, there appears the name of the person and a birth date and a dash and a death date. We are living in the dash. And we are here to make our lives count. You probably learned this as I did when we were children. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.